It seems kind of hopeless right now, but you're going to figure this out. This is pretty debilitating. I'm able to turn my pain into purpose. There are people out in the world that do understand what you're going through. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we have a powerful story to share with you from our guest, Ellie Littlejohn. Her story involves the interweaving of personal trauma and chronic illness. Ellie has MS, multiple sclerosis, but she was just diagnosed with MS. Ellie has lived through any parent's worst fear in that tragically her daughter passed away in 2018 while riding in a car being driven by a drunk driver. And in response to this trauma, Ellie started experiencing a lot of physical symptoms. Her doctor ran an MRI and discovered two lesions in her brain. But because of the trauma that Ellie was experiencing, her doctor diagnosed her with FND, Functional Neurological Disorder. FND is normally diagnosed when no clinical evidence of disease can be discovered, but someone has neurological symptoms and a history of trauma. The theory with this disease is that the body is converting stress into physical symptoms. Ellie's symptoms continued to get worse over the years in ways that did not match with an FND diagnosis. But because that diagnosis was on her chart, she couldn't shake it. And throughout this period where she continued to get worse, her lesions were multiplying. By the time she was finally diagnosed with MS, she had 15 lesions in her brain and a lesion in her spine. Ellie definitely believes that trauma has made her MS worse, that it caused her MS to flare. But she also feels that her trauma gave her doctors an excuse to ignore her and to gaslight her, even when they found lesions in her brain. But what is our medical system coming to when the loss of your own daughter is a barrier to getting proper care? I'm so impressed at Ellie's perseverance. And when you listen to this podcast, I'm just scratching the surface here of what she's been through. Her story is riveting. This is an incredible episode of the show. I'm so grateful to Ellie, not just for coming on the show, but just to be an advocate out in the world for people who have lost children, who have experienced this type of trauma, and for whom that trauma is manifesting in their bodies in one way or another. Ellie has founded a nonprofit, the Alicia Littlejohn Foundation, named for her daughter. You can find it at intheblinkofaneyeinc.org. I will put a link in the show notes for this episode. And she also does amazing advocacy work on social media, particularly on TikTok. I'm honored to be featuring Ellie's story, and we'll get to it in just a few minutes. Before we get to our amazing conversation with Ellie on today's podcast, I do have to say thank you to the people supporting this show. I absolutely need your support. I'm so passionate about this project and want to keep it going forever, but in order to do so, I need your help. There are several great ways to support the podcast. You can learn about all of them at majorpainpodcast.com support. There are some quick and easy things you can do, like supporting us on social media or leaving us a positive rating and review. You can check out our partnership with Rare Patient Voice, which is such an amazing program. There's a link in the show notes. Or you can even support this podcast with monthly financial contributions on Patreon. Extra special thank you to our Patreon producers supporting this podcast at the highest tier of $25 per month. Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. This episode of Major Pain is also supported by a creator grant from the Stimpunks Foundation, an amazing nonprofit organization. You can check them out online at stimpunks.org. I'll remind you as always that I am not a medical professional and this podcast is never intended as medical advice. So please do not take any medical action based off this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And with that, we'll jump into our powerful episode with Ellie Littlejohn 
about her battle to be diagnosed with MS and how trauma intersects with her chronic illness journey. Ellie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for reaching out and asking about coming on the show. I've taken a look at a bit of your TikTok, and it seems like you've got quite the story to tell. And from what we've talked about through email, I'm really eager to hear your full story today. But before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit. So Ellie, why don't you tell us about yourself? Sure. So um, as you know, my name is Ellie. I just had a birthday, so I turned 46, um, August 28th. I am a mother of three. One is an angel. She is my oldest. Her name is Alicia. And I have Cameron. He is 22. And then Michaela is my bonus daughter, and she's 21. My hobbies, basically, what I like to do is I like to paddleboard, anything to do with the beach, being out in nature. I practice a lot of mindfulness because I have a lot going on, which you'll soon hear of. (laughs) I'm an avid fitness guru. I love anything to do with, you know, the fitness industry. So working out is a hobby of mine. Travel, cats, I have four of them. And I also advocate for the grieving community for child loss, as well as for chronic illness. And so that's pretty much sums me up. Amazing. Yeah. And I can see you have some uh, incredible tattoos. Do you have a, a favorite tattoo? You know, um, they're all really significant. Um, They all mean so much to me. I would probably offend them if I picked a favorite. So they are all (laughs) very dear to me. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I only have one tattoo because it it took me until I was 30 years old to figure out what I wanted to do. And I've wanted to do another since then. I'm almost 40 now. It's been almost 10 years. I just turned 39 uh, a couple days ago, actually. Um, happy birthday to you too. Thank you and happy birthday to you. But yeah, I love tattoos. I love, you know, marking the significance of something in a way that you carry with you. Yeah. And you know what? Hopefully I've given you some inspiration to go ahead and do it because, you know, we don't keep these, we don't get to keep these vessels forever. So yeah, absolutely. Well, let's jump into your story. Ellie, what is your major pain? So my major pain is a few. So I have several dual diagnoses. The major of them would be my recent, most recent diagnosis of um, multiple sclerosis. Previous to this new unfortunate diagnosis, I was diagnosed with PTSD, anxiety, fibromyalgia, and um, functional neurologic disorder. Yeah. Wow. And I know that your health journey is kind of centered around grief and trauma that has happened in your life. Yes. Unfortunately, yes. So, I started experiencing a lot of trauma and a lot of loss early on. I lost both of my parents when I was in my 20s. Wow. And then I lost my daughter in 2018. Um, She was unfortunately a passenger and the driver was a drunk driver. Um, He was impaired and she passed away along with three others. So all four passed away due to um, riding with driver, a driver under the influence. Wow. That's so I, I can't even imagine processing that. I I am still struggling. Um, I think I'll probably struggle with the full process of it uh, for the rest of my life. But that's pretty much what kicked off um, majority, almost all. Well, I won't say all, but majority of these major health issues. Hmm. I was always very active, again, involved in the fitness industry, super, super passionate about advocating that, you know, no matter what trauma you go through, 
if you keep your mind and body strong, it will aid in living through that loss. So that's, you know, my motto, I always got through a lot of the trauma early on through, you know, physical fitness. So when 2018 happened, and my big trauma of losing my daughter, that's when my body decided, um, I guess it was too much, and it started doing its own thing. So had you had any chronic illness issues before then? Um, you know, with experiencing such grief and loss early on, obviously, um, and, you know, just life, I was dealt like some pretty not so good cards in my life, but it is what it is. So I didn't really understand that um, I was experiencing physical things, you know, due to like trauma. I, I was young. I was in my 20s. So I lost my father in 20, um, 2001, and then I lost my mother in 2006. And when I lost my um, mother, I was 29 years old. And when I lost my mom, you know, I obviously was devastated. Um, and I had experienced some, some like major headaches, a little bit of vision, you know, blurriness, um, some funky feelings like numbness and tingling and such. And I remember going to the ho- to the hospital and they wanted me to see a neurologist and they had mentioned possible like multiple sclerosis. But hmm. listen, I was 28 years old. I was a single mom at the time. I had two young children and my the symptoms kind of resolved. So I didn't ever go back to the I never went back to see a neurologist and never thought anything further. And then in 2018 is when things just took a left. In hindsight, do you think that that was the first, uh, I, the first little bit of MS kind of peeking its way to the surface? I do. Yeah, I, I do for sure. And I know, I mean, I know that it can take years, if not decades, sometimes to get a proper diagnosis. Believe me, I know this better than most. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, and sometimes you know, sometimes things take a while to sort of progress to the point where they're even diagnosable. I know MS for sure is one of those diseases where if they do an MRI and they don't see any lesions, but you have MS and it just hasn't created lesions yet, there's almost no way to diagnose it that early. Right, you're absolutely right. And because I had um, such a complex, unique circumstance with so much trauma, that is exactly, um, in addition to it just being hard in general to diagnose, put on top of severe trauma and grief, um, I, I I really was kind of stigmatized even within the medical, medical community because child loss is on a whole nother level. Yeah. Um, and it really does wreak havoc on your body. And that's what basically I, I had experienced. So, so it was 2018, my, you know, my daughter passed, I was completely, obviously devastated, um, non-functional. Um, about three months after my daughter had passed, I, I was self-medicating, I was drinking, I mean, I was just literally trying to pretty much kill myself without actually killing myself. Yeah. I didn't want to, I didn't know how to live without my child. And at that point, I ended up having appendicitis. And I went to the emergency room, they're like, Oh, we have to like, immediately, you have to have the surgery, remove your um, appendix. And I was I also had like gastritis, diverticulitis. I mean, my body was like, Oh, wow. Ravaged. Yeah. So I was I was in the hospital for about two weeks, um, got home, was, you know, recovering and still obviously dealing with not only the loss of my child, but now this, this is a, you know, a DUI homicide case. Mm-hmm. Um, so dealing with that portion of it as well, 
And I started having these really like odd, weird symptoms, like numbness in my legs. Um, like they would just go to sleep, pins and needles to like the extreme, you know, so it was just something I'm like, okay, this is weird. It's probably because obviously I'm just not eating. I'm not taking care of myself. I'm not sleeping. And so I ended up going to the hospital for like a massive headache. It was like a major migraine. They ended up running a, a, a CAT scan and they didn't find anything. My primary care ran an MRI of the brain and it was like two very mild lesions. But with my symptoms, she's like, I think you need to go see an MS neurologist. Yeah. Um, and ironically, my daughter's friend who she passed with, one of the, the four, her name is Bella. She, Her mom had also went through almost the same thing as far as experiencing the appendicitis and, and all those things. And we would, you know, we would speak when we could. And we would kind of just say, how are you doing? You know, what, what's been going on with you? I'm like, you know, telling her like, man, you know, I've been having this weird sensation, like in my legs, I can't feel them sometimes. They just go to sleep out of the blue. And she's like, girl, I, I just got diagnosed with MS. And it sounds like you're, you know, you have the same thing, maybe. And I'm like, you know, no way. There's no way. Um, so then when I went to see that neurologist, the first neurologist, she actually happened to be the one who was treating Bella's mom. Wow. Like she got diagnosed super early, super fast. So she was on treatments, had started treatment. Well, the neurologist, in a sense, I felt that she looked at me as if though I was almost like paradigming, like mirroring Oh, you know, your friend, my friend, wow. right? Because we lost our daughters together. And she was just very um, quick to say, well, you know, you don't have the same things as what the other woman has your your lesions are really mild. So she was like, I really think at this point, with all of your history of trauma, you have FND. Uh, that's so upsetting. Oh, my God. That makes me <laughs> so mad. No. What the? I, I I'm speechless. You you have symptoms. You have lesions, and she just yeah. like isn't gonna take that seriously. I mean, that's really and, that's really disturbing. And you know, for people who aren't familiar, functional neurological disorder, um, which is a very serious disease. The the theory behind it is that stress and anxiety and trauma is sort of being translated by your brain into physical symptoms. Uh, I was mm -hmm. misdiagnosed with this at one point. They used to call wow. it um, conversion disorder when I was misdiagnosed yeah. with it. And my doctor basically told me, if we can find nothing wrong with you, we're going to diagnose you with conversion disorder. It was sort of like a lingering threat throughout one of my workups with an old neurologist years and years ago. And it was really devastating for me. It, you know, from the, it felt like the doctor was basically saying, well, We've tried everything and you're fine and you're still sick, which means it's your fault is kind of how it felt to me at the time. And I know that, you know, this is a sensitive topic. There are people who have functional neurological disorder and yes. those people absolutely deserve care and, and, and respect and empathy. And they often don't get it because there's this stigma around, you know, this diagnosis as well. 
But to to go into the doctor and to have actual proof of MS, which we know you have because you've now been diagnosed with, and then to be told, like, to not be taken seriously that way and to be told you have FND is, you know, is, is very offensive. Yeah, I was very like taken aback because, you know, I didn't even know what conversion disorder or FND was. So when she proceeded to explain it to me and she kept saying, you know, your symptoms are real. They are real. We just don't have any clinical evidence as to why you're having these symptoms. And some of your symptoms don't really match up with what MS symptoms would be. So and let me just back up. I actually I want to make the point that you made, and I, I agree with that 100%. Um, FND is real. It is a real thing. You, you Your symptoms are real. Um, I do believe that I I do also have FND um, to, a, you know, to a point. Yeah. Um, however, at this point, I'm like, okay, I can take that. Um, but uh, to your point, I'm like, I have, why do I have these lesions? Well, the lesions aren't really characteristic too much because lesions with demyelinating disease for MS, the lesions that they look for are in particular spots of the brain, and they have a, a shape to them, believe mm-hmm. it or not. So you can have lesions come about because of migraines or uh, other, you know, demyelinating diseases. So I'm like, okay, what do I do? And she's like, well, with FND, you need to go to, first, you need to go to trauma. You need to go intensive inpatient trauma treatment, CBT, all the things. Yeah, cogn- um, cognitive behavioral and I therapy. Did. Yeah, I hopped on a plane. Wow. I hopped on a plane and I I went to Arizona um, to a world renowned trauma treatment facility, and I was away from my family for about I want to say four months. Wow. So. I was still having these issues. And so I just, I let it go. And I said, you know what? Well, I guess all my trauma and, you know, my daughter passing, this is just caught up with me. So I would have like, my symptoms would present and then they would go away and then they would present, you know, and then a couple months later they would come back. But I just learned to just deal with them really Mm. until I couldn't. Well, I, I'm really glad that you made the distinction that you do believe that you you do also have FND because I think that's actually extremely valid and important. And you're in this unfortunate position where because of the stigma around FND and because this doctor just wouldn't take you seriously for whatever reason, they kind of put everything in the FND basket when in fact you likely have, well, we now know that you have FND and MS happening at the same time. And that would explain why not all the symptoms match up with MS, you you just, you know, went through such intense trauma. And of course, that's going to affect your body. You know, like, no one's denying that yeah. that trauma can have physical implications. You know, PTSD, right. anxiety, depression, these things can all affect your body very intensely. You know, our mind and our body are connected. But yes. to, to completely ignore the other piece of it is is so frustrating. And if if the lesions, if this doctor thinks the lesions don't match up with MS, but they may match up with another demyelinating disease, why are we not looking into that? You know, why are we not doing further diagnostic testing? Why are we not trying to uncover what's happening with these lesions? Let me tell you, in 2018, 19, I was so mentally not there. 
It was mm. hard for me to articulate words. Sure. It was, I mean, I could, it was such a, I was in such a bad mental status that she just so focused on the fact that you're really taking your daughter's death, like so, so hard. And this has to be what it is. And so I, I believe that for a, for a little bit. Um, and then fast forward in 2022, I got sick um, with the flu and I was driving with my partner to go get some cold, med- more cold medicine. And I lost my vision in the middle of driving. Oh, no. <laughs> That's yeah. not safe. And as you can see, my prescription is pretty thick. Yeah. So I had my I had my contacts in and I literally was like, did my contacts just fall out? Like I was dry. I was like, what's going on? I can't see it. Everything just got so blurry. Like my vision just, and it wasn't a long period of time. We pulled over and then it resolved. Yeah. Six months prior in January, I had just went to and got my, you know, my eyes checked and my new prescription. So I'm like, okay, do I have a brain tumor? Is, what is going on? Am I having a stroke? Like I, I didn't, I was freaking out. So I saw my um, ophthalmologist um, and she was like, look, your vision has like gotten so drastically worse since just six months. She's like, I think you need to contact um, your neurologist. So I did. So I called this neurologist who I haven't seen in two years, called her, called the office. I'm look, this is what happened. They said, oh my gosh, we haven't seen you in two years. And I'm like, well, you guys told me I had F and D and what to do. So I went about my, about my business, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, what else did you not, you didn't, you know? So I went in, me and my partner and um, my partner, um, we've only been together for going on what, two years. So she's just coming in to my life and here I'm starting to have all this stuff. So she went with me, thank goodness, because this doctor literally said, listen, you, it's, it's nothing. It's F and D. Did you do the things that, you know, we told you to do? I'm like, well, yes, I did. She turns her computer around and she sits there for a whole hour and she's explaining again, what F and D means. And, you know, it's basically like she was more so trying to convince even my partner that this is nothing more than due to trauma F and D. So I said, okay, I went back to the eye doctor. The eye doctor said, no, no, no. F and D does not cause this um, with your vision. So I um, was referred to a neurologist. Ironically, at the same time, I ended up having new symptoms, which I didn't know that this is what new symptoms were. I just thought my back was extremely messed up in some way, shape or form because I had severe back pain. So I was also consulting with a pain and spine facility. They ran x-rays and yeah, I do have some, you know, discs that are herniated and protruding and things like that. So they were trying to give me all of this pain medicine. And I was like, nope, not doing that. No, thank you. They gave me like a a nerve blocker and it like, it was so horrible. It didn't help. It was actually worse. Oh, wow. But then I transferred my spine and back pain care as well as um, I was seeing the neuro-ophthalmologist for the first time. So when I got to the pain and spine, the guy was like, look, I reviewed your records from the other place. Um, You have fibromyalgia. Wow. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, what is that? He explains that to me. 
But ironically, he was like, well, I want to kind of wait on treatment or anything. I'm going to pause my care because I want you to see where this road takes you with the op- neuro-ophthalmologist. So I'm like, okay. So I'm just like running around trying to figure it out. Um, thankfully, that neuro-ophthalmologist took the time to review my entire history and in detail. And he said, I want to do a couple of things. I want to send you for updated MRIs of your brain. I also want to send you for a spinal tap. Yikes. So I'm like, okay, he didn't say why. I didn't even ask any questions why. I'm just like, look, he's going to help me try to figure out. So the MRI came back. He said, I'm sure it'll be nothing. I just want to take a, I just want to take a look. I, I just want to look at some things. And he said, but I'll call you with your re- results. And then I had my MRI, and uh, my spinal tap in the process. I get a call from him that says, we need to see you. You need to come in the office. We need to have a discussion. So I'm like, okay, this, this has to be something because he would just, you know, tell me over sure. the phone. So me and my partner go, we go to his office. Um, he says, you know, listen, I'm a neuro-ophthalmologist, but I spent years and years overseeing our MS neurology program. So he's like, so when I read your history, a light bulb went off. And although I don't currently practice and diagnose, I, I wanted to see if my theory was possibly correct. And he turned his computer screen around. He goes, I believe that you have multiple sclerosis. Mm. And I said, no, no, no. I was, I I was told I had FND. I I don't, you know, my lesions aren't nothing. And he said, well, and he starts counting all of these lesions and he counted about 10. Wow. In your new MRI. In my new MRI. And you, what you had two, you said on the first one, right? Yes. So you've, you've gotten eight new lesions in four years. Yes. Somewhere, you know, you don't know when they occurred because there was no baseline, right? She didn't run any other testing when I went back to her the second time. Right. So he says, um, let's see what your spinal tap shows. And the reason I ordered the spinal tap is because one of the um, main criteria in diagnosing also um, MS is, goes by the McDonald criteria. Um, they often will do a spinal tap and they look for what's called oleological bands. Oh, I didn't know this. That's interesting. Yes. That's why they do spinal tap is another form of testing and diagnosing. So um, within the McDonald criteria, it's like seven or maybe five, whatever, different scenarios in which a doctor has guidelines to go by um, in order to give a, a real solid diagnosis of MS. He also was like, you know, let's just see what this spinal tap results. Well, someone, a normal person can have two or less ovulogical bands. And what that is, is basically um, your central nervous system, when it becomes inflamed by disease or what have you, then it will throw off like an antibody within the cells of the fluid or something. And that's how they can mark to say, well, in MS patients, 98% of the time, a person will have elevated ovulogical uh, we, we call them OCBs um, or OB bands. A high amount would be anyone that has two or more, right? Um, a high amount is six. Well, my spinal tap came back and I had 12. Wow. 
That's too many. So my body, <laughs> that is, it, it, it was like an extreme amount, even for someone with MS. Wow. So he says, I'm going to send you to my colleagues um, over at the MS division and they will work with getting you a diagnosis. I'm going to send my recommendation, my notes, my findings um, over because again, he was out of that practice. It was out of his scope at that point. So he couldn't give me a diagnosis. Um, so he had to refer me to his colleagues. So we meet with the, the head of that division and he says, well, Miss Littlejohn, I've reviewed um, the, you know, your results in history. And it seems here that you were previously diagnosed um, in a net with another network, another doctor with FND. And right now we just don't feel confident that there's enough, enough, we don't have enough clinical evidence that we feel comfortable with diagnosing you with MS because if we diagnose you and we're wrong and it's really just the FND and we put you on a DMT treatment, that's poison to your body. And, you know, we don't want to misdiagnose someone with M MS and they truly don't have MS and give you this poison in your body. So we want you to come back. We'll monitor you for six months to a year to see if we see any other changes. And I said, well, hold on. First, what is the significance with my spinal tap with that result? And I had two lesions and now I have 10. Isn't that clinical evidence to support? If it doesn't support MS, then what else does this support? Because FND does not cause yeah. clinical evidence damage. That's the whole, the whole thing with FND is that you can't see, you see nothing on a test. That's why you get diagnosed with FND. Right. So they were just very like, it, almost like I was challenging. Well, I'm a pretty savvy chick, even with all the trauma, I do my research and we had questions and they were not answering them. It was very, well, you know, uh, you're, with your trauma, with your history. And, and again, Miss Little John, you were diagnosed with FND, which clouds, which clouds our diagnosis process. So my insurance contacted me. I had a, a health advocate and they saw all of these MRIs and doctor's visits. And they're like, look, what's going on? Do you need help advocating? Um, are you getting the appropriate care and answers? And I'm like, absolutely not. Wow. So I'm blessed to be able to have great insurance to where they had a second opinion program. Yeah. Who is your insurance company? That's astonishing. Aetna. Aetna. Oh, Aetna. Amazing. Yes. Wow. <laughs> Insurance yeah, swooping so, in to save the day. You kidding? I've never heard of that before. I'm like, okay. And they're like, yeah, this is, well, the benefit um, through my employer that I work, they actually partner with Aetna for, it's called Included Health. And it is a program that helps um, with gaining a second opinion. So they put me in contact. They matched me with a doctor from Harvard with amazing credentials. They sent all of my images and everything. I never talked to this um, doctor. He just literally based his second opinion off of your medical clinical history. Hmm. And he was like, you have MS, you need to go back and advocate and push that 
your neurology team to diagnose you because you need to be on DMT like yesterday. Wow. And they did not budge. They would not budge. This is, uh, this is so upsetting. Like this is the danger of being misdiagnosed. And uh, well, it's not even necessarily a clear misdiagnosis. Like you said, you may have FND also, but this is the danger of an, of a FND diagnosis. Just in general, yeah. and and a fibromyalgia diagnosis. I've also been misdiagnosed with fibromyalgia, and I would go see doctors, and they'd say, "Oh, well, why are you here?" And I'm like, "Well, I have you know these worsening neurological symptoms and chronic pain." And they're like, "Well, you've been diagnosed with fibromyalgia, so that's what it is, and you just need to treat for that." I'm like, "Yeah, all my other doctors tell me that that's not it, that that wouldn't cause the neurological symptoms that I'm having." But he like refused. Yes. He refused to see beyond the old diagnosis, and. It's it's really scary. It's so dangerous. It's so super dangerous. And it's very frustrating because dealing with the loss of a child and that really like overpowering grief, you have minimum fight. Mm. Most of us have minimum fight. I didn't. So it was like I misunderstood because of my new grieving journey with child loss. And I'm misunderstood now with even my own body and no one's trying to listen to me. So the included health team said, look, we will find you a new, a new neurologist in your area. And I said, I don't even trust going in my area. Send me to, I want to go to the best in the best within a 300 mile radius. And I was so blessed to meet my current MS neurologist. She specializes in that. And she, we met with her, she went over my records and she said, I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I don't get how this with all of your, you have more significant clinical evidences than most people (laughs) that get diagnosed with, you know, early, early on with one or two lesions and the brain or spine or whatever. So she said, because I'm just coming into this now, now here we are, this is last year. I had been hospitalized like three times. I had lost my ability to completely walk. Wow. So she says, I want to um, monitor you, but there's no doubt about it. You have clear demyelinating disease on the spectrum of MS, which AKA diagnosed me with clinically isolated syndrome, which is kind of like, well, we want to see more evidence, but we do know that you have MS, but we can't really, she couldn't even at that point, cause she had just taken my care. So I, I agreed to that, but she did recommend to go ahead and start the disease modifying treatment. Mm-hmm. But I said, no, cause at this point now I'm confused. I'm questioning if I even have MS or not. Sure. So she says, okay, I, I will, I feel comfortable with that decision. And obviously it's ultimately your decision. Um, but if we see any, progression or any new lesions, any new symptoms would show a new damage to your body, then, you know, it's going to be a different conversation. So it's been about eight months. And in August, early August, I had new updated MRIs and um, of the spine and the head, the full gambit. And she called me the weekend of my birthday and said, Miss Little John, here's your diagnosis of MS, your disease has progressed. I now have 15 lesions of the brain. um, And then I have a verified lesion on my T6 on my spine. Wow. 
So I will be starting um, DMT infusion. It's one of the more, more stronger treatments on Monday, actually, this wow. coming Monday. Wow. What a journey. <laughs> and you, I mean, we just, it's September right now. It's the end of September. So you just got diagnosed last month. September 1st. September 1st. Okay. This month. You were just diagnosed this yes. month. How does it feel after all of that and all of this uncertainty, all of this back and forth to finally have a name to pin on what's happening to you? So it's a, it's a gambit of emotions. Um, it was a relief that finally I wasn't imagining these, all these other symptoms, even after accepting the FND. I just knew that, you know, even with my clinical, I, I was just like, God, I'm just so confused and I'm I'm frustrated. And um, I felt really stigmatized by being a, um, a child loss um, survivor. And then the emotion of anger, right? Because now I have more damage that obviously has been done. Back in the first couple years, right, I was able to have good days in a span of time, but now they're just so far few and in between, and it's really become a challenge. So there's that anger that I say, well, had that neurologist, when I went back that originally diagnosed me with FND, had she ran a spinal tap or she ran updated brain MRIs, I might not have had now 15 lesions of the brain and, you know, or spine, you know, and so that's, that's the angry part. Then there's the fear, the fear with, okay, now I am going to have to take this DMT poison to my body. And, you know, I actually tried to prolong it because I'm used to doing that. Right. And I asked my current neurologist that not diagnosed me, I said, well, what if I just wait a little longer? What if we wait another six months? And she said, absolutely. I do not. I do not recommend that. She's like, you might wake up any day and never walk again. As long as it took to get the diagnosis, I have to think really fast and make a commitment to do this treatment for the rest of my life. I'm still kind of like wrapping my mind around it all, actually. I would feel the exact same way. And this idea that this doctor found this when there were two lesions and not only did nothing, but did worse than nothing by sending you in the wrong direction and putting a diagnosis on your chart. And that, that caused so much damage. I mean, you have like a real malpractice case going here. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I, and I am contemplating, um, on if I am, well, I, I, I do believe I'm going to take that route. Um, but First and foremost, I need to like get this health under control. Absolutely. Um, but you're absolutely right into that point. And just a little feedback on that. I did my research on F and D versus MS and why is this a thing? You know, um, why is this so hard? And you had a guest, Sam, that came on that I follow her on TikTok as yeah. well. And, um, you know, I'm like, look, let me do my research. And what I found was several case studies that allow me to understand why this might have occurred. So back in the day, they were diagnosing a lot of people, everyone with MS, MS, MS. Um, F&D, even amongst neurologists, is not very well known. 
I mean, because it's not clinical, right? So they kind of poof, 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 you know, push it on. <laughs> well, when people started looking further into their MS diagnosis, many people found or several people found that they really didn't have MS. There was another demyelinating disease that was missed. So they turned around, speaking of malpractice, and they sued a lot, a lot of practitioners for misdiagnosis and putting them on a DMT, a treatment that was poison to their body when they really didn't need it. Mm. So because of so many malpractice lawsuits and so much damage done to the medical community with misdiagnosing people with MS versus it was something else, they switched gears and they said, you know, this is my theory. They switched gears and said, you know what, let's talk about risk here. We would rather put it off on something else and allow more true damage to be done with someone like Miss Littlejohn who has FND that might cloud us versus really saying, okay, take the blinder off for the previous diagnosis of FND. Let's strictly focus on what we see clinically. They wanted my body to do the damage to make their job more secure to prevent a possible lawsuit. But what happens is you run into the other risk and that is not diagnosing someone in a timely fashion, sitting on a diagnosis. This person has now caused damage when it could have been prevented. You didn't allow this person the opportunity to seek a treatment that is so many treatments that are now here to help and slow a disease down. So it was kind of like, which is, they went with the lesser of the evil. And unfortunately, I paid the price for it. You're the one who suffers for it. Yeah. You know, doctors being sued for either doing too much or doing too little, I mean, is part of why doctors' hands are so tied so often. But in a case like yours, what I'm feeling is that you were discriminated against. You know, you you have this recent trauma and, you know, you're a woman and you have tattoos. And I, I know from experience, like wow. walk, walking into a doctor's office, the first time I went into a doctor's office with my neurological symptoms, they were going to send me home because I was, you know, 20 something San Diego kid with long hair and like played in rock bands and looked like someone who didn't take life all that seriously, even though I did. But, you know, the way that you look, you know, doctors make snap judgments, you know, and I know that it's, it's harder for women and, you know, you're a woman of color and I feel like you were discriminated against. So that it's so funny and crazy that you, you even pin that and brought that up because I will tell you the neuro um, MS doctor, it was the first consultation with him and soon as he walks in my partner she's a caucasian female and he walks in and he looks at me and then immediately starts talking to her as if she was the patient <laughs> and i had to say i'm the patient we experienced that a few times it shouldn't matter what you look like right and when a doctor walks in they should say who are you know Hi, and who are you and who are you? But 100%, I feel that there is a little bit, I was um, discriminated to a certain extent. But evidence-wise, the real truth of the matter is you took a previous diagnosis 
and you just put blew me off and you didn't do your due diligence as a healthcare provider to do all the legwork, do all the exclusions. And it was at my burden, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. And even just going back to the first neurologist who, let's just imagine a world where you went to her first before this other friend who also lost a child who also has MS. The idea that you come in second and then this doctor says, oh, well, you're mimicking your friend. So you have FND. If you had not told her that she was treating your friend or if you had gone in first, does it change? Does the whole story change? If you don't mention right. that you've lost a daughter recently, does the whole story change? You know, right. who knows? But what's that narrative? Right. What is that narrative going to be created at that point? What, what would that have looked like? You know? Yeah. And it's so complicated because he absolutely, the trauma that you've experienced has impacted your health. Like no one is denying that. And right. it's very possible that that trauma, you know, well, this is actually my next question for you. Do you believe that that trauma uh, sort of sped up your progression of MS, that your body was under such stress. Do you think there's a connection there? I 100% th think there's a connection there because, um, you know, your body keeps the score. And when you're dealing with trauma to such a level, um, for me personally, I will say that I feel like my daughter being taken away, which is in essence part of my soul yeah. being ripped out of my body. And I'm a strong chick, right? I can um, tell. <laughs> you know, I've, I've been dealt really crappy cards throughout my whole life. Um, but I've always been able to like persevere, right? And fight through them and help others. And but when my daughter passed, and my kids were my number one, right? It really rocks me. And no matter how much I tried to get into the gym, go to boxing, work it off, lift, CrossFit, all of these things that I used to do to work through my trauma, my body just was not having it. And so with MS, um, especially trauma also and stress, stress is a huge contributor with bringing that to the forefront. So I absolutely agree um, with my trauma you know, I, I sometimes blame the the circumstance and say, you know, if I never lost my daughter, then I never would, I wouldn't be like this right now. It would have just stayed silent. Yeah, or it could have progressed at a different pace. Like all of this is such an inexact science. Um, and this is what I tell um, when people say, when you first started, you said, I couldn't imagine. Right. And you shouldn't imagine. No one should imagine what it feels like to lose a child. But I'm going to I'm going to give a little feedback on that. When you have a really nightmare, a really bad nightmare, and if you are a parent and you, and you have a nightmare and something in your something happens to one of your children in your nightmare, you um, wake up and you're like, oh, my God, I'm glad it was just a nightmare. And you go on about your day. Mm. And I used to be one of those parents. But for me now, when I wake up in the morning, I wake up to my nightmare. If I have the nightmare, I still wake up to the nightmare. This is my nightmare. And so the stress every day for me, just on a, a child loss, um, grieving parent perspective is uh, way surpassed what the normal state of stress and managing that stress. There's only so much that I can manage stress wise, yeah. you know? 
Absolutely. And then you add on, you know, normal life stressors, bills, finances, work, life balance, all of those things just pile in. And it is definitely, it, it is definitely a fight and it is definitely a struggle. Absolutely. Tell me about your cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm really curious about this. You mentioned that you basically spent four months away from your family. So I assume that's like inpatient CBT. And I'm so curious about this because when I was misdiagnosed with conversion disorder, they sent me to a cognitive behavioral therapist to try to kind of convince me to not have symptoms anymore is how it felt. And my therapist on day one said, you do not have conversion disorder. You know, she told me right away I didn't have it. I, I really dodged a bullet there. Because I, yeah. you know, then it was like, well, we're barking up the wrong tree, you know? So, I mean, that diagnosis didn't stick because of the therapist's notes. Um, so, I didn't really go through the process. I don't really know what's involved in CBT for FND. So, I'm curious what that was like for you. Cognitive behavioral therapy is a behavioral um, therapeutic approach that treats all level, like anything that has to do with basically the way you process your information, Um, whether it be the way you're processing your trauma or the way you're processing your levels of pain or your pain in general. And so it's basically geared to um, retrain your thought process, right? Replace bad thoughts with good thoughts, Um, not, uh, not focus on and I hated this because I, I, when it comes to my grief and my loss, you know, don't focus on the loss. Well, that's not, that's not possible. How you react to it can be sometimes manageable, but it goes the same with pain, right? And um, any, anyone dealing with pain, um, it's geared to say, well, today, and I'll give an example, today your back hurts. Try instead of staying in the bed because you need rest or because you're in pain or you took medicine and now you're, you know, having to rest because you're sleepy a little bit because of the medication, fight that. Think about something that you can do to get out of bed, right? Maybe not what you normally would do. So it's really a good, um, I do believe it is a primarily good therapeutic approach to help manage your whatever diagnosis it is or whatever trauma it is, but it's not a cure by any means. And I think that's where the lines get blurred, right? Mm. Because a lot of doctors hand you off to do the CBT, making you feel like if you do this CBT, then you're going to be healed because we don't have other anything else for you. Like in my case and in your case, um, had you have gone down that road. So I do think that there are benefits to CBT, but I think that it also can be a double-edged sword and a knife in the back if that is used by a medical professional to, um, you know, get you out of the door. It's therapeutic. It's to help, but it's not, it's not going to be a cure. And that goes along. I also... I took that doctor's advice because he said, you know, you need to go to our our chronic pain clinic. Well, this is after I'd already had all those months, the years prior, I could probably teach a CBT uh, group. You know, I could, I can do that. Um, So when I went and they said that it was going to be for 
um, people with various different chronic illnesses um, dealing with pain. And when I, I lasted four days, it was, I lasted four days. Mm. It was very um, offensive Yeah, because that's exactly what it was. Um, a lot of the people were on pain management and they were trying to convince them, you know, to get off the opiates and all of that. I don't take, I, I don't, I'm not on, I take gabapentin. I'm not on um, any pain management. And at that point I was on um, a anti um, an anxiety um, that I took as needed. And I was on that for years out of van. I'm sure mm-hmm. a lot of your listeners know, I'm sure you, you know, of it. I've taken it before. And yeah. I, yeah, I was told that because of my anxiety and panic and PTSD is so bad that this is like, it is what it is. And I would probably be on it for the rest of my life. And so when I went in there, it was like day two and they said, well, we need you to sign your medications over to us and sign this form that says you agree that we are going to get you, wean you off. And my primary said, you know, Ellie, if you try to get off this without closely being monitored, you can have severe withdrawals that, you know, and even my neurologist that diagnosed me with MS, she said, that is the least of your worries. You need to stay on that because it helps you with your stress. And so when uh, that pain program, I was like, wait, 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 wait. Now I'm not comfortable with that. Like, and they're like, well, then we'll kick you out of the program. Oh my God. And the lady said to me, you're not the only person that has lost a child you don't need this. Everything is in your brain. Your pain is in your brain. Your grief is in your brain. Your anxiety is in your brain. You don't need this medicine. Um, Well, there's also lesions in your brain. There's also MS in your brain. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's lesions in my brain. It's just, uh, it's just a stigma really. And yeah, sure. It might work for some people and you might be able to retrain your brain to um, not have your pain. If you're one of those people, then great. Um, and if anyone can retrain a brain to survive and, and get through pain, I can do that. But I just, I really had a, a disease. Yeah. The pain is the pain. But um, on that note, I am off Ativan. I ended up getting COVID and I, I kicked it on my own. So Wow. Yeah. I, you know, with what you're talking about with the CBT, there's such an easy fix for this, which is for doctors to say, hey, I don't know what's going on with you. I don't know what's wrong with you. I can't figure it out. You may have functional neurological disorder. There's no way to prove that. But cognitive behavioral therapy can teach you some things that may help to manage this. You know? Right. Let's keep looking. Let's keep doing tests. Let's monitor you. Maybe we'll, you know, do a MRI next year. But in the meantime, let's take a look at some cognitive behavioral therapy that can teach you some tools that may help you to get through the day. And if a doctor had said that to me, I would have been all for it. I would have jumped right on the CBT and been been super into it. And I ended up sort of just through the process of like being home and sick all day, every day, coming to some wow. conclusions about how to get myself out of bed and, you know. You did your using, own CBT. I, yeah, I sort of CBT'd myself. <laughs> you CBT'd yourself. And, you know, and I, and I appreciate that because, you know, in your scenario – that is something that I feel like if they had approached you in that manner, then you would have um, 
benefited in some way, shape or form. If even just a little bit from the CBT and on the flip side, in my scenario, I had already been through the CBT and I was like, look, I've been there. I've done that. You do have clinical evidence. This like, there's gotta be something else. Like what's, what's going on. So it is a gray, a gray line. And it's the bottom line is if doctors listen really listen. And there are some, I, I do, I I'm blessed to have a primary care that listens and my new neurologist listens, but if they were to use that same CBT practice, when it comes to treating their patients, then maybe there wouldn't be so many of us that fall through the cracks like we have. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like you have to prove that you're sick by fighting for decades to get someone to take you seriously. I know that the journey has really changed me and the process of learning how to advocate and fight for myself and value my own health and strengthen my mind-body connection. All of those things have like profoundly changed me as a person for the better. And I mean, you're in such a different situation where you're, like you said, you're waking up to this nightmare every day. But I can also really tell that like you have, you are strong, you know, <laughs> like the things that you have been through and in these last couple of years in particular, where you've just had to focus on your own health and your own, mm-hmm. you know, well-being and fight for that. Has there been mm-hmm. something in that process that has helped you to move through this trauma that you're still living through? Um, yeah, um, there's a, there are a few things. Um, it's giving me the knowing to know, look back where I was and I never thought I would be able to have grit, right? I have mm. true grit and I do have fight. I fight for what's right. Always have. Um, I'm very outspoken and transparent and real and raw. Always have been. There was a point I wanted to give up. I lost that part of me. And through this advocacy for myself, advocating and um, pushing back on this, these doctors, not giving up for my my health, um, physical health, it actually strengthened my mental health. And it allowed me to say, you know what, you are still there. You're not ever going to be the same. You're a new version. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm just big on helping people and, and, and being a voice for people who aren't um, who who aren't as outspoken as me. So not only has it helped me um, with my grief advocacy um, for, you know, being there for other grieving parents and just being a voice for the grieving and specifically also for child loss, but also to advocate for people who due to their trauma and their life hardship experiences, whether it's one or whether it's many, it's allowed me to also be a voice for someone who suffers from chronic illness as well, because I'm telling you, there's so many, even mothers that are just like me right now, that this grief of losing our children has affected our health so bad. And I want to, you know, be able to say, look, yes, I'm sure you have PTSD. Yes. I'm sure you have anxiety. Yes. You have grief mush brain, but if your body is telling you something then you need to listen and a doctor, you cut them open and we all bleed the same. Hmm. Do not feel intimidated or scared that you can't push back because you're the only one that's going to, at the end of the day, advocate just like we're the only ones that are going to keep our child memory alive. We're the only ones that are going to be able to advocate for ourselves. 
So it's just given me even more courage and strength to dig deep and take it even a step further to help others like me and my unique dual diagnosis. (laughs) Yeah, that's incredible. It's so powerful. And I love what you said about, uh, you know, you can't go back. You can't be who you used to be, but you can become someone new. I, I love that. That's the mindset that I have taken as well is, you know, I used to say, oh, man, I just wish I could go back to before I was sick and be that person again. But that sort of discounts everything that you've been through and the person that you've become and all, all of the trauma that you had to live through that changes you. And you can integrate that into a new person where you have those lessons and that can be really powerful. How does fibromyalgia fit into this picture for you? I know you were diagnosed... Uh, but in the Great midst question. of, yeah, in the midst of all this other stuff with the MS, is that a diagnosis that you identify with still? Um, when it's, when I, when I, when I feel like it, I guess, <laughs> oh no, 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 I'm just like, okay, today it's MS, today it's fibro. Um, that is a great question because ironically, um, when I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia in the mix of all of this other stuff, and they did also try to diagnose me with chronic pain fatigue. And I'm like, no, I'm not taking another, like, I'm not doing this game. It, it felt just like a hustle at that point. Mm. You know, I was being played. You were offending my intelligence level at mm. this point. Mm. So I'm like, um, at this point, you diagnosed me with fibromyalgia. And we don't even know, except for the research independently that I've done about it. Um, but there was never any, like, talk, anything other than you have fibromyalgia. So I'm diagnosed with it. but. That's a good question. Um, I was just talking to my partner the other day. I'm like, well, is this a fibromyalgia pain or is this a new MS symptom that I need to call the neurologist about? So it really clouds and makes things very confusing, even for me. So when I understand more about that, I will update you. Yeah, please do. (laughs) I have no idea. Like, honestly, see how confusing? Yeah. Like, because what's it? What's now? what What is it? You know, is it? fibromyalgia or is this an MS? But I know that because MS presents and it is a crippling, like degenerative, damaging to the body um, disease, I think I definitely identify with that more. Yeah, absolutely. What are your coping mechanisms? You went through years where you weren't getting much help from doctors. It sounds like it's very much affected your energy level, your mobility, your pain levels. How do you get through the day? Um, well, I get, I, I try to get enough sleep, um, eight hours. I need at least seven to eight hours of sleep. The days that I, I do feel well, I try not to push myself past that point because if you cannot gather from me, I am a all or nothing and I am zero to 100 and everything. So I'm still learning, um, moderation especially with um, working out or going paddle boarding, you know, instead of paddle boarding five miles, we maybe will paddle board two miles, even though I'm like, no, I need to go more and more. And I live in Florida, so it's very humid and it's extremely hot and humid. And um, so I have to keep my body cool, my body temperature cool, uh, because it doesn't do it on its own. That, that gets broken. Um, with a lot of our chronic illnesses, right? Especially um, with MS, but known to me, I thought I was going into uh, premenopause. I was, I was seeing my OB for that too. And they're like, no, like, I'm like, well, why am I sweating? Why do, why am I so hot? And I'm sweating at night. 
it's the MS. So I'm learning to stay cool. If that means um, I have like a cooling cloth, always have a cool water with me so I can pour it, keep cool, don't overheat, um, moderation when it comes to working out and accepting that I am not the old Ellie that can go do CrossFit because now sometimes I wake up and I haven't worked out or done anything for three days and I feel like I've done CrossFit. <laughs> um so it's important not to over push myself, know my limitations, which again, I'm still learning. Um, drink, hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. Um, I'm also not the best with that. But and I'm one of those people, I don't like water, the taste of water. It just, but I don't drink sodas and things like that, too. So I'm very mindful also of what I put in my body. Um, I, I limit alcohol. Um, I really actually at I don't drink any alcohol, um, except maybe I'll, let's say I'm out, we go to dinner and I'm like, well, I'm going to try a drink. And it's a way she's always like, my partner's like, no, cause you're just going to waste it because my body just, even the littlest bit of alcohol for me is just so bad for, for my body and my symptoms. So being mindful of what you put in the, your body, knowing what works for you, what doesn't work for you, minimizing my stress. And this is also for a grieving mom or grieving parent. If you have, let's say, an acquaintance or a friend and they're bringing negative to you and they're not contributing anything positive and you find yourself stressed, you really have to be mindful of who you place around you. Um, I'm very cognizant of that. If you are not, if you're draining me, you got to go, you know, because I got to take care of myself here. Um, so I, I take my medicine as directed. That's about it. You know, um, for me, really, it's that body keeping that body temperature cool is huge because that causes specifically for me to flare my symptoms. Just it is crazy how it happens to you. Yeah. Yeah. My college girlfriend uh, was diagnosed with MS like right when we started dating and what? she couldn't take a hot bath. It would make her feel really sick. That is so crazy. You say that because I love hot baths and I use hot baths as I always have as a therapeutic approach. I take my Epsom salt, you know, Dr. Teal's, all the different kinds they have now. And I soak in the bath. So ironically, two weeks ago, I was having severe body aches and pain. Um, so I decided I logged off work and I soaked in a hot bath. My partner was home off work at the time and she was doing some work in her office and I got out of the bath and this is probably a little graphic, but I think it's important. I'm very transparent because I'm sure there's other people, male and or female that might have had this happen. So I get out of the bathtub, I put my clothes on and I'm standing looking over her shoulder at the computer and I felt something go across my ankle. Well, I thought it was one of my four cats or three cats indoor, one outdoor. Mm -hmm. And I looked down and I was actually going, I was, I was urinating a hundred percent. And I'm like, I, I freaked out. I didn't know. I was like, this is it. My disease has progressed to a level of no return. Mm. Like, so I called my neurologist and I'm like, listen, I don't know if I need to go in or what do you want me to do here? And she, the first thing she said was, did you take a hot bath? <laughs> And I said, but yeah, I mean, I, I always pretty much take hot baths. And she's like, well, 
with MS, it's called Utah's phenomenon. And back in the day and like the early like 1900s or before they had MRIs and spinal taps and all that stuff, how they used to diagnose MS, they would have the person get into a hot bath. Oh, wow. And if, if they come out of the hot bath and they have loss of bladder function or mobility issues, um, then that's how they gave diagnosis to MS. Wow. I didn't know that. That's so interesting. Um <laughs> How has this impacted your family? So I am blessed. And I think, um, call me one of those, you know, strange people and my theories. But I think that my daughter sent my partner to me mm. 100% because she has been just such a, uh, a voice for me when I didn't have one. Words of encouragement, affirmations to keep me going. Totally unconditional we had only started dating like, you know, maybe six months when all of this weird stuff started happening initially. And we were, I mean, we were enjoying our lives. Let me tell you, we were at the prime and, you know, she is a very same, th same hobbies, outdoors, beach, um, paddle boarding, again, beach, you know, anything in the water, swimming, sun, tanning, like anything. And then, you know, we were just enjoying ourselves and then, here this happens and now she's had to make adjustments too and so she's been just accepting and you know she's like we're in this for the long haul and you know it is what it is but i'm i'm, I'm gonna be right there by your side and so yeah it's been moments that i had to get out of my head um there was moments when um last summer when i couldn't walk and i was in the hospital and all of that and i was embarrassed i was ashamed i would take it out on her and say do you really want to be with someone like this i mean i'm already a grieving mom you got to deal with that now you got to deal with this so um it's very important that you have a partner that is going to accept you for the good and the bad because that's what it should be about my kids they're very supportive and there was a point that, you know, my son, you know, we, we did a um, walk for um, the mad, we did a mad walk. And my son at that, I was in a really bad state and he, I didn't get to walk, but do the 5k, but he pushed me the entire time in a wheelchair yeah. as I was holding my daughter's picture. So my small unit is very supportive and I couldn't ask, you know, I'm just so blessed because I might not be able to make it this far if I didn't have them. That's amazing. I'm so glad to hear that. Well, I have one last question for you. What is your message for other grieving mothers, grieving parents, people who have experienced trauma and maybe have a chronic illness on top of it and are having trouble being heard and feel stuck? Yes, thank you. Thank you for letting me get this um, last question and because it's very important. So my message would be to be your own advocate, stand firm on the fact that even with your trauma, even with your grief, as horrible as it is, you still know your body. You don't have to stick with that first doctor or even that second doctor giving you just a dismissive answer that you don't feel comfortable with. Seek that second opinion. Um, be, be, very forthcoming with yourself that look, you've gotten yourself this far, you're surviving this far. That's a fight. Well, this is also a fight, you know, 
And also don't be afraid to do research, you know, just because someone has a doctrine, you know, doesn't mean that you're not able to go and, and, and fact check and ask those hard questions and just stay, stay persistent in your healthcare. Cause if you're not going to advocate for yourself, they're not going to advocate for you. And also understanding that just because you lost your child does not mean that you become inhuman. Don't let anyone judge you based on the fact that you lost your child. You're still a human and that still requires humanity to be given back, especially in our medical community. And, and reach out for resources. Put yourself um, you know, in the forefront of support like-minded people. Because I think oftentimes as grieving parents, we do feel so alone and misunderstood and misjudged that we tend to inwardly um, turn in when there's so many, we're a whole community in ourselves. You just have to like reach out and, you know, and network and really place yourself and find your tribe. You have to find your tribe. Even with chronic illness, you got to find your tribe. Yeah. Amazing. Fantastic advice. Ellie, this has been a sensational conversation. I am so appreciative of you being so open and sharing with us. And this really touches on something that is deeply, deeply important to me, something I have lived through a piece of as well, something that is deeply disturbing, the way that certain diagnoses with stigma can prevent you from getting the care that you deserve. And I think the best way that we can combat that is to share our stories and to show each other that we are not alone in that, teach each other how right. to advocate for ourselves and, mm -hmm. you know, shout this from the rooftops that these types of things are happening. And it's so important to continue to fight because if you hadn't continued to fight, those 10 lesions could have been 20 or 30, you know? And yes, we Absolutely. would have liked to have started medication when you had two, but that's in the past. We take what we can right. and it, absolutely would have been way worse if you had not fought for yourself. I'm so impressed by your strength and your resilience, your perseverance on Thank top you. of, you know, shouldering this huge burden of grief, also shouldering this huge burden, burden of chronic illness that you've pushed through to get to the place you are now is incredibly impressive. Please tell our audience where we can go to connect with you online or anything else that you'd like to plug. Yeah, sure. Um, you can connect with me on my TikTok. That's my number one platform that I use for all my advocacy. Um, so you can connect with me. It's um, Grief Island and Child Loss. So that's at Grief Island and Child Loss. That is my TikTok. You can, you know, message me, um, comment on any of my, um, you know, videos, join my lives. It's a safe, open space. And or if you're interested in learning more about the foundation I created and the other advocacy um, work that I do to spread awareness against riding with drivers under the influence, as well as seatbelt awareness, you can visit our foundation webpage um, at In the Blink of an Eye, Inc. or the Alicia Littlejohn Foundation. Amazing. I'll put links to those in the show notes for this episode. Uh, Ellie, you've done such a sensational job today. I can't thank you enough for what you're doing, your incredible advocacy work, and for sharing your show and for sharing your story with us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. And one day, maybe I will be sharing a show. 
<laughs> if I could get to your level, I think it's so great for you to do what you're doing. And I mean, honestly, like, thank you so much for having me and giving me this um, opportunity to share um, and help others as well. Yeah, you're awesome, dude. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons, Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Alexandria Henderson, Justin Minnick, Heather Muncie, and Robert, and our $25 per month producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.